Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, April 16th, 2010. This week, episode 163 comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnay. That's a beautiful spring day in Pittsburgh, Joe. Good day, Cliff. We should be golfing. (laughs) (laughs) We also have the intrepid environmental Annie Kowalecki at the controls. Good afternoon. Good day, Annie. And today's segments include the microband trivia question. We've got Dr. Elliot Hornet. Horner, excuse me, from Air Quality Systems down in uh, Marietta, Georgia, I believe it is. We'll have our halftime with our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, and then we'll come back to our interview and finish up with the roundup as usual. We've been updating and adding that blog every week to the IAQ Radio website after the show. Check it out at iaqradio.com. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry East Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry East is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at John Don, J-O-N-D-O-N.com. And our new marquee sponsor, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management, who provide management best practices and in-depth cleaning solutions to help keep readers ahead of the curve and successful in their daily operations. Visit them at www.cleanfacts.com and www.cmmonline.com for more information on these invaluable resources and to subscribe. Be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Okay, to contact the show, you just follow the link on the invitation we send out, and uh, you can either text in messages. If you want to call in, you can call 724-444-7444. Our show ID is 1547. Of course, you can always download the shows later on our website, iaqradio.com, or from iTunes. Don't forget, we also have those ABIH, IICRC, and ACAC renewal credits. Just email me and request a quiz. My email is joe.hughes, that's H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com. Our email addresses are also on the homepage at iaqradio.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates 
for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn, let's turn it over to the Z-Man, microband trivia question for today. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Simply email it to cliffz at prorestoreproducts.com. Congratulations <laughs> to Cassidy Kuchenbecker with Environmental Initiatives, LLC, for answering last week's microband trivia question. We appreciate the Indoor Air Quality Association prov providing Cassidy's prize, which was a thumb drive of their conference proceedings. Congratulations also go out to Chad Seams of Shive Hatter. <laughs> And Chad cleaned up some technical or some trivia questions that previously were unanswered. We appreciate Pro Restore Products for providing Chad with a generous number of legend points for his efforts. Now for the Microman trivia questions for Friday, April 16th, 2010. The subject matter for this week's trivia question comes from the field of mycology. The members of this phylum include all the fungi with gills or spores, including the familiar mushrooms and bracket fungi. Name it. Back to you, Joe. Okay. Speaking of uh, fungi and mycology, today's guest is Elliot Horner. He's a PhD and a fellow with the American Academy of Asthma, Allergy, and Immunology, and a lead AP, Dr. Horner, is the laboratory director and principal consultant for air quality sciences. His PhD is in plant pathology from Virginia Polytechnic Institute, and he's got a master's degree in mycology from SUNY, I guess that's State, New, State University of New York, College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse, and he also had uh, his undergrad was in botany and comparative literature from the University of North Carolina. After getting his Ph.D., Dr. Horner completed a National Institute of Health-funded fellowship characterizing fungal allergens at Tulane University School of Medicine before joining the research faculty in the Allergy Clinical Immunology section, where he established a bioaerosols and indoor mold research program. He also served as chair of the 2002 Environmental Microbiology Laboratory Accreditation Committee on the American Industrial Hygiene Association's lab quality assurance program and served on their analytical accreditation board as well through 2003. He's a member of several ASTM committees and uh, we'll talk more about ASTM standards as we go through the uh, interview today. He's also conducted numerous investigations and complaint resolutions in courthouses, commercial buildings, hospitals, residences, schools, uh, defense manufacturing facilities, and other types of facilities. And last but not least, he's a fellow of the American Academy of Allergy, of Asthma, Allergy, and Immunology, uh, the AAAAI. We do have the acronym police here, uh, so I want to warn Elliot before he comes on. Let's uh, get our introduction music for Dr. Horner. speak a language known to few ones some might call debased using words like gyne and sperm bring a smile to the botanist's face i could be fired for not being pc but office folk will never understand 
same mice vagina hurts or poke my gyne are just tools in my lesson plan. That's why I love me because I think plants are as well. Some may call it monotony, but they're all going to hell. Clip okay. another classic. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Dr. Horner, do we have you on the phone? Uh, yes, I'm here. Thank you. Welcome, and it's great to have you. I had not heard Cliff's intro music. He comes up with some uh, some beauties, I'll tell you. I don't know if you've ever heard that one before or not. Uh, no, that one was new for me as well. <laughs> Actually, he came up with about three in that, and our uh, our uh, technical person here picked out one of the three, I think. Right. So that's, we'll thank Annie for that one. Um, we know you've done a lot of study of botany and microbiology. Can you can you tell us what kind of parallels exist between uh, botany and microbiology? Sure. Um, and my uh, my slant on it would be more of uh, looking at the parallels between botany and, and mycology, uh, which is a bit more specific, as I'm sure you know, than uh, the very broad term microbiology. But uh, both of both both mycology and my comments here would uh, be uh, biased towards uh, mold growth in buildings, fungal fungal growth in buildings, including mold. But uh, perhaps the most obvious or the most uh, striking similarity to me is how they both uh, generate um, communities built around specific habitats, and of course out in the field, a community of plants that would colonize uh, and grow in a field is different from what would grow under a pine forest. And likewise, or in a similar vein, inside a building, uh, the habitat of a wet piece of gypsum wallboard versus wet insulation or uh, basidium ice seat decay in, uh, in wet timbers uh, are all different habitats, and they're going to have a different association of a uh, different group of species associated with those habitats. And that's uh, something that to me was uh, a very striking similarity when I started looking at, uh, at water damage buildings. Um, Doc, do, uh, do you have a green thumb? Are you a gardener? I mean, do you raise orchids or bonsai trees or, you know, anything like that? Um, actually, I do a fair amount. I do some gardening in the house, but around the house. But mostly, what I prefer is to uh, is to put in native plants and then let them take care of themselves. It's a, it's a very sort of a low maintenance gardening approach. But uh, the time that I get to spend with plants, uh, really these days, I try to do more field botany, get out and uh, and look at some of the some of the natural uh, ecosystems. And in Georgia, it's uh, pretty fortunate. We've got a couple of different types of forests. We've got granite outcropped, which have a very unique uh, group of plants associated with them. And then, of course, uh, streams and mountains and, and beaches are, are nice places to go and look at plants as well. It gives you an excuse to get out and uh, not spend too much time running around chasing golf balls or anything like that. Gotcha. Sure. I'm curious, uh, when we talked about some of the parallels between botany and mycology, which I, I like that you you narrowed that down uh, from microbiology to mycology. Maybe you could quickly review for listeners what you know your definition of mycology is. But then the follow-up was you, you mentioned fungal growth in buildings, including mold. Can you men can you talk to us a little bit about um, you know mold's kind of a generic term that sometimes people have a hard time wrapping their hands around. Can you tell us a little bit about you know how you define mold and when you said growth including mold, what other types of fungal growth do you 
run into in buildings or, or can you talk to us about that we find in buildings? Sure. Um, there are uh, terms are important and uh, different people use terms different ways. It's uh, uh, the only I, I try to make sure that people understand how I'm using them just so if they're used to, if they are used to using the terms in a different way they can uh, understand the differences. Uh, mycology is the study of fungi you know, in particular and that's whether it's big mushrooms or yeast or uh, molds uh, that would include all of the fungi including wood rot uh, fungi and mycorrhizal uh, mushrooms out in the forest. That's a little, little different from microbiology is a broader term and would encompass to study bacteria, viruses, protista, a number of different groups, and to some degree even uh, perhaps some people would lump parasitology in, in with that. My interest for some time, and I think the interest of most of uh, most of your listeners uh, in terms of mold, fun, fungal growth has to do with the growth of fungi in the indoor environment. Um, the groups of, the general groups of fungi that are going to occur in the indoor environment are decay fungi and molds. Uh, there may be a couple of others, but I think that basically covers all of it. And of course, the great majority of the concern is pertaining to mold. Now, the decay fungi, and what here I'm talking about in, in wood products, uh, wood, of course, is cellulose with a lot of lignin wrapped around it. Lignin is a very resistant material to decay, which one of the one of the good features that it bring, that lignin brings to wood. Uh, and there are very few, relatively speaking, few fungi that are able to take apart lignin. And those are what are referred to as the decay fungi. They are related mostly to, uh, they are yeah, almost exclusively related to mushrooms. They are types of mushrooms, uh, in fact. One or two microfungi are capable of uh, generating what's called soft rots, uh, primarily in saturated wood. But uh, the other major group that is a fungi that's going to be found growing in buildings would be what's commonly referred to as molds, and those are generally microscopic or almost microscopic um, fungi, predominantly uh, those that produce the forms that produce uh, asexual spores. Common words, uh, commonly also referred to as mildew uh, by, by a lot of people, uh, and there are probably three or four, three or four dozen species that are, are going to occur in buildings, and that would represent the great majority of what um, of the fungi that grow in, in the built environment. And I've already emphasized several times the word growth. I think that's a pretty important concept uh, to realize that what, we're con what we should be concerned about in indoors is not just the presence of a spore floating around, but, uh, but whether or not there's actual colonization, whether or not the spores have, uh, whether or not the fungi have colonized material and, and started growing on it and decomposing it. Okay, I, you know, you've hit on a couple things that I try, I, you know, I teach courses around the country and I'm not a mycologist and I always try to ask these questions. So, you know, we go down this list. I remember the old saying when I was in, uh, I guess, junior high that King Philip came over from good England, I believe it was, it was kingdom phylum class order, family genus uh, species from good Spain, good Spain. I got to get that right. Um, when you talk about groups, what, what level are we at there? Are we at the uh, class level? Is the, are those actual classes, or are they more like artificial groups that, you know, we kind of place things in as a placeholder um, so that we have a better understanding of, you know, and, and are they different from the yeast, for instance? 
Um, to answer your first question, the groups I was referred, I made mention of several groups uh, in that prior response, and some of those groups were at various different uh, taxonomic levels that you referred to, uh, file a class order, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Some of the some of the fungi that are growing in buildings, uh, we would need to be talking about species level. Uh, what I was referring to about the wood decay fungi uh, versus uh, the other major group, that's going to be way up at the division or phylum level. Okay. Uh, and then some of the other subgroups, the penicillium, aspergillus, erosium uh, species, which I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with, uh, that would be closer down to an order or even a family level uh, to, of, of grouping. Okay. Cliff? Okay, let's... Uh... I don't know. Let's change subjects. Uh, Dr. Horner, what is a fungal allergen? Allergens in general are antigens that elicits an IgE response. Now, antigens, I'm I'm sure you uh, probably know this already, but the human body makes antibodies, which are uh, proteins that recognize specific um, foreign particles or foreign, mostly foreign uh, material that gets into the body. And there are different classes of antibodies. The most common and abundant is IgG, uh, and that is a response that our body makes. Our body raises IgG antibodies to all sorts of things that we come in contact with so that it can, the body's immune system can keep track of what's supposed to be there and what's not. There are several other classes of immunoglobulins or antibodies. Uh, there's IgE and D and M and A. IgE is the class of antibody that triggers the allergic reaction. So it's a good thing to have IgG against uh, foreign material that gets into our body, either we breathe in or we ingest it. However, if the immune response gets shifted to making IgE instead of IgG, then um, that is setting up the body to produce an allergic reaction when it subsequently comes in contact with that uh, antigen. And so there's a subset of antigens that uh, elicit this IgE-type response, and those antigens are called allergens. It's a subset of allergens or a subset of antigens that elicit IgE and, and hence the allergic response. Fungal allergens are just allergens produced by fungi. Everybody knows that, of course, ragweed and, and tree pollen uh, it can, be an, can be allergenic as well as cats and dogs and uh, dust mites. And fungi also can produce uh, antigens that trigger allergic reactions. I can tell you about the tree pollens right now. In Pittsburgh, oh, yeah, it's, it's really, really, kick, really, really bad. They are kicking my butt. Um, and then We've got a bumper crop of it down here too we had a wet fall and a wet spring and it's all nice and warm so yeah every every day you wash your car and it's yellow again by the time you get back to it um do bacteria also produce allergens generally not most of the allergens uh aeroallergens are either well they could come from a variety of sources they are but, but generally not bacteria for for some reason uh, certainly a lot of plants, a lot of fungi, and there are a lot of animal uh, allergens. Uh, they, they are some that are, uh, are going to be produced only in specialized occupational settings. One, um, one very unique uh, allergen is uh, seafood allergen, shrimp and crab in particular, crab processing workers. 
frequently get uh, sensitized to some of the crab allergens by inhalation. Uh, that's an unusual exposure route because where they're cooking large volumes of, uh, of crab and processing it, uh, they can actually aerosolize the allergen on the steam particles. And uh, it's, you get sense that these people can get sensitized to seafood allergies not by ingestion, but rather by uh, breathing it in inhalation. And that can be, uh, has in fact led to cases of occupational asthma. So allergens come from all sorts of things, but generally not bacteria. These fungal allergens that we're talking about, are they particulate or are they gaseous or are they liquid in nature? And what's their form? They, uh, uh, antigens are almost exclusively proteins or glycoproteins. I mean, what you're looking at is the actual molecule is, is the allergen. In most cases, aeroallergens are going to be carried on particulate. Well, in all, you know, in all cases, they're not gaseous. Uh, they're, in all cases, they're going to be carried on particulate matter. And the great majority of that is going to be dry particles, although the example that I, I just uh, gave about the crab processors uh, would be obviously on liquid, uh, liquid particles, um, droplets. So it's uh, basically uh, it's all about avoiding uh, allergen ex- allergen exposure, that is, allergens that are in airborne. Uh, the control of the exposure to aeroallergens is all about dust control, and they can be uh, allergens can be on particles anywhere from you know less than a micron up to 10 microns in diameter for uh, fungal allergens, and of course pollen is going to be a good bit larger than that, as well as dust mites and cockroach allergens tend to be on larger particles too, up, upwards of 10 microns. In a couple of months, I'm going to hit the big 6-0, and I think my body's already older than that, and I'm already <laughs> taking all sorts of supplements and so on and so forth. And one of the interesting ones is this, you know, chondroitin supplement that my wife gives me. And what's interesting is that I just noticed that all of a sudden they're listing that this contains, uh, um, you know, particles of, uh, you know, sea life crabs and lobsters or, or whatever. I uh, guess I guess they're ground up and they're somehow involved in this. And I'm just wondering if the reason that they list this as an ingredient um, comes down to uh, this allergic reaction. You know, I guess I guess maybe you can get it if you eat it, and then I guess maybe you can get it if you breathe it. Uh, is is weird. I think you're right there. It's the, uh, but I, I think it's the glucosamine in there that is um, is the reason they're they're listing that, and the source of which is the chitin from probably either shrimp or, or crabs, and the glucosamine is not going to be allergenic. I assume that the reason they put that warning on there is they they cannot guarantee that the uh, the material they're processing is completely free of of the allergen, which is would be carried, possibly carried over as contaminant. So I think that's the reason for that precautionary statement. Now, another area that a lot of our listeners, whether they're doing investigation or remediation, oftentimes have to deal with are, are the volatile organic compounds that are um, produced and released by the fungi and, and I guess the bacteria as well, these uh, MVOCs. Can you help us uh, understand a little better what these are, first of all, and then maybe we'll go into some specific questions on that? Okay. The uh, MV- VOCs in general are uh, volatile organic compounds. I'm sure you've, uh, uh, you guys are all familiar with those. 
if the source of the VOCs are microbial, they're referred to as MVOCs. Now, now there are a lot of MVOCs that are not specific to um, microbial sources. Uh, probably the most abundant microbial VOC in a lot of fermentation situations is ethanol, uh, which is the uh, target molecule for, for some fermentations, but the and it, but it's produced by a lot of others. Yeah, from a building standpoint, that's not a particularly useful compound to look for. Some of the other uh, microbial VOCs are somewhat more specific uh, or very specific to uh, to fungal growth or to a, or to a particular type of bacterial growth. Uh, that's these are the compounds that are responsible for some of the specific odors associated with particular types of uh, bacteria or fungi. To the degree that they are specific for microbial growth as opposed to having other possible sources, then these molecules become useful as indicators of microbial uh, activity. Now, one thing to bear in mind is that these products, these uh, MVOCs, are produced while the microbes are actively or metabolically active, that is, while they are growing. Uh, if they're, it's, and it's, uh, they are a byproduct of their, uh, of their respiration, of their metabolism. There's some indication, uh, there are very few studies looking, uh, asking questions about what is the purpose of these compounds, and some of them, so some of these uh, compounds may in fact have uh, signaling uh, functions either to, for other species or for uh, other colonies of the same species, but that's uh, an area that uh, needs a lot more research and more from a, a pure science standpoint. From a building application uh, standpoint, there are a small number, dozen, maybe two dozen uh, individual VOCs that are thought to be pretty useful for, uh, for tracking down uh, mold growth that is currently active or has been active in the, in the fairly recent past. Uh, once a colony uh, dries up, once a mold colony or, or uh, the city of colony dries up, its growth is going to stop. It may or may not die at that point, but uh, either way, it's going to stop. Uh, the metabolism is going to shut down, and that will lead to the MVOC production stopping as well. So I, I just came back. I had a gentleman in a class. Or actually, he grabbed me outside of a class. He was shopping at uh, John Don, by the way, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. But anyway, I was there, and uh, he pulled me aside, and he said, you know, I've got this home uh, that still has this musty odor. I can't find any mold in it. You know, we've cleaned it. We've uh, cleaned the carpet and so on and so forth. And uh, I told him, I said, well, and then I kind of, I'm glad you confirmed this, that there either is or very recently was some actual growth occurring in, in, in that building and, and that he's got to try and figure out where that was happening. I think it's going to be in the carpet, but um, that's something he's got to check. What would, what would you tell someone that – would you say the same thing to someone that asked you a question like that? Um, yes, I think so. I mean, I certainly don't disagree with it. Uh, Bear in mind that some of these molecules are uh, what chemists refer to as fairly sticky. They can uh, absorb onto surfaces. Well, once they're, of course, released by the growth or the MBOC, since they're volatile, they're going to become air, air, uh, air, well, airborne, I guess is the term more for particles. They diffuse into the air. But then when they come in contact with a the surface, some of these compounds can absorb onto surfaces 
and then subsequently be released back into the air at a later time because of either shifting patterns of heat or ventilation or whatever. So bear in mind that it, uh, in some cases it may be days, some cases it may be weeks after that absorption takes place and then secondary release. So it could take a while for odors to completely dissipate if that is the case, uh, and even if the source of the mold growth has been found and has been corrected, it may take longer for the odor to, get to, to dissipate. We were involved in one situation uh, years ago that was quite interesting pertaining to MVOCs, and similar to this situation, there was a household, a uh, family had been uh, transferred to work in Europe for a while, and they put their household uh, belongings in a shipping container to ship it over for the 18 months or so they were going to be in Europe. By the time I got there, there had been some mildew growth inside the units, and it was uh, prevalent among that mildew growth was Aspergillus penicilloides, which was a particularly stinky uh, mold, and uh, they had a great difficulty getting the odor out of their um, out of their contents. I mean, it was uh, offensive enough to the point of where if they put clothing in the same closet with some of the clothing that had been affected, uh, the odor got picked up by the other uh, by the clothing that had not initially been, been affected, uh, and that was quite troublesome to, to get rid of. Although we were able to establish that there was no longer any mold growth. The odor was quite persistent and, and challenging to get rid of. How do you get rid of it? Uh, I'm not certain what the uh, ultimate uh, solution to that case uh, was, uh, since we were not involved in, in actually remediating it. Uh, I know that they had laundered and dry cleaned some of the clothing. They had had some of the other contents uh, professionally cleaned, and the odor persisted. Uh, that was the, as, as far as we got into that project uh, uh, so I don't know what they what they finally did, but I don't have a good answer for you on that one. If you can't um, identify exactly what the source is, then it's going to be difficult to understand exactly what uh, what to clean better, or if it uh, or how to determine if something actually cannot be adequately cleaned and perhaps needs to be replaced. Uh, that that certainly is a is a challenging situation you're describing. I'm wondering too if you run into uh, or have run into in the past cases where only certain individuals notice the odor um, and that you can no longer pick it up yourself or the investigator can't pick it up, but they, the, the owner of the property still seems to um, notice this odor. How do you handle those kind of situations? Um, those are, that's another challenge. Um, yes, I have seen situations uh, like that. There are two that come to mind. One is a situation where most everybody's nose will become, uh, the term I think is olfactory fatigue. Your, your olfactory senses will become fatigued very quickly if you're around uh, butyric acid, which is uh, a carboxylic acid that's a type of VOC, which is the characteristic smell, or part of the characteristic smell of vomit. Uh, there have, was involved in one investigation and where uh, some of the building materials had become uh, contaminated with this compound and probably in the manufacturing process and microbial growth in some of the wet storage tanks. And when you stepped onto the floor of this office building, uh, the elevator doors opened, you were immediately hit with a very strong odor of vomit. Uh, of course, there wasn't any there. It was coming out of some of the building materials. But within four or five minutes, you didn't notice it anymore. 
So that's not a problem, typically, until the folks in that office went out for lunch and then they came back in and hit it again. The solution there was removal of a lot of the, uh, the offending material. Uh, another case that I know of was uh, closer to exactly what you were describing. There was one person in the office that could always smell something, uh, sewer gas-type smells close to uh, the restrooms. And they were, uh, nobody else could smell it. Uh, various people looked, checked, couldn't find anything. And after multiple incidents of, you know, come check this out, multiple requests of come look for this, find out what's going on, uh, had an investigator pop a ceiling tile and look at the, well, first they noticed that the janitor closet between the two bathrooms uh, had, a, had an exhaust grill in it, but it was not exhausting. You could actually feel air coming out of the exhaust grill. Uh, in the, the, in the uh, janitor's closet. And he popped the ceiling tile at that point and looked up above uh, the ceiling line and the exhaust fan in that duct had been installed in reverse and had been operated that way, been sucking air out of the common exhaust uh, duct from the two bathrooms and had been blowing air down into this uh, closet. Now that was very easy to fix once somebody believed that there really was a problem. So it's it's important to realize that uh, even if you can't smell it, or if you've got this olfactory fatigue situation going on, that um, it still is worth worth looking. And certainly the common, uh, simple things are, it's always useful to check those out first, you know, is the supply side and the, and the exhaust side behaving in the way they're supposed to be behaving just by looking at airflow. That's what uh, got a solution to, the, to that particular problem. Okay. Well, let's... Um... We're going to go to our halftime, uh, Dr. Horner, and we'll bring you back in just a moment. Cliff's got a, a little news article that he wants to do first, and then we'll bring Dr. Wow on to see if he has any comments and questions, and we'll bring you right back. Headline, Fed's, okay. uh, headline, Feds Approving Bogus Products as Energy Efficient Investigation Finds, foxnews.com. The federal government has been slapping energy-efficient ratings on products that don't even exist, including a bogus space heater with a duster stuck to it and an alarm clock supposedly powered by gasoline. These fake products were submitted to the Environmental Protection Agency and the Department of Energy for approval as part of an undercover investigation by the Government Accountability Office. The office wanted to see how easily the feds could be duped since the Energy Star program used to identify products as energy savers serves as a guide to businesses looking for such modern marvels and the basis for millions of dollars in incentivization of tax credits, including $300 million from the stimulus. The products fooled the federal government three out of four times. Of the 20 products submitted for approval, 15 were given the thumbs up. The GEO reported that the government generally did not ask for the critical evidence to back up the claims about how energy efficient or real its bogus products were. Certification controls were ineffectively primarily because Energy Star does not verify energy savings data reported by manufacturers, the report said. Two of the fake firms even received requests from real firms to buy the products after they were listed. Among the products approved was a room air cleaner. The product image should have been a giveaway. It showed a space heater with a duster and several fly strips attached to it, looking more like a fire hazard than an energy saver. The EPA approved it in 11 days and listed it on the official website, according to the GAO. The government also approved a metal roof panel, a geothermal heat pump, and a gas-powered, gasoline-powered alarm clock. The later was described as a generator-sized clock 
run on gasoline. The government did reject two of the products, a compact fluorescent light bulb and ventilating fan, and took no action on three others. The GAO reported that the government asked for the products to be certified by a third party for only four of the products, and that those one was rejected. Government officials told the GEO when informed of the investigation results that they continue to check up on products after they are certified. In a joint statement, the DOE and EPA said, they take the findings very seriously, and they have started enhancing testing to improve, but they said the public should not lose confidence in the program. A review last year found that 98% of the products tested met or exceeded the Energy Star requirements, and last year alone Americans, with the help of Energy Star, saved $17 billion on their energy bills, the statement said. Consumers can continue to trust the Energy Star to save energy and money and protect the environment. Back to you, Joe. All right. Let's bring, uh, I, I guess, you know, you could look at that two ways. One, not so good, but the other, at least they were checking on each other, you know. We had uh, the GAO checking on, on EPA, and uh, so I guess uh, there's a couple ways. But that, that is, the if you see the photo, it's just, we'll, we'll see if we can post that. It's kind of amazing. But anyway, uh, let's go to, uh, our, let's thank our sponsors real quick, if you would, Annie, and then we're going to bring Dr. Wild back on. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Pro Restore for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at ProRestoreProducts.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at Legends-Enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dries Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dries is first in drying solutions. Learn about them at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, that sounds like Dr. Dietrich Wiles music. Hello, Dieter. Yeah, I still love that Beethoven stuff, <laughs> believe me. Let's bring uh, Dr. I made, Horner I made back on to three, four, five, six, seven. I, I don't know whether I get to all of them. Um, we, uh, a Dieter, we brought we brought Doctor Horner back on too, so maybe you could kind of interact with each other a little bit here. Surely, and uh, he made a couple of very excellent uh, 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 suggestions and remarks, which I have been making for years. And I, the first one I circled over here is uh, Cliff is turning sixty. I'm over seventy. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> You don't feel sorry for me. I don't have a wife who gives me vitamins or something like this. But I can tell you one thing. 
there is nothing in that world that makes you any younger. (laughs) (laughs) Guaranteed. And I don't care whether you're a mycologist or an MD or a brain surgeon. Anyway, believe me, nothing gets better with age. Anyway, uh, a couple of very good uh, 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 remarks over there on allergens and so on in the house. If you have a normal... Uh, ventilation system like I have in my house, you know, there's a furnace down there and there's a filter. If you think that you change the filter and they say, you know, change it once a month, if you think that you filter out allergens, <laughs> forget it. <laughs> These damn allergens have a size of, and as was mentioned, between 1 and 10 microns. And the filters which we are using in our ventilation system, including mine, uh, they don't even look at particles at 10 micrometers or let's forget it. They go through there, so you're not going to get rid of them over there, which is interesting. We talked about a couple, uh, 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 it was mentioned, uh, allergic reactions. And I worked, oh, my heart, this is 30 years ago with a doctor, a butcher from Tulane University. And we talked about um, allergies and um, that had something to do with some of the chemicals which were made by the Bayer Chemical Corporation. That's how we started to work together. And there's an interesting thing, and again it was mentioned, uh, if you are allergic to penicillin, you think you are allergic to penicillin. You are probably not allergic to penicillin. You are allergic to penicillium because in the old days, they could not make it 100% pure. It was 99.9% pure, and some people had a reaction not to the penicillin, but to the penicillium. Another wonderful one, (laughs) people don't believe this until they see it. I have seen ventilation systems, including in one of my bathrooms. There is a little, it's, I don't call it a fan anymore. It's a noisemaker. And I put a smoke tube at it. (laughs) That damn thing is kind of running backwards. It doesn't do anything other than making noise. And uh, I, uh, 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 Cliff mentioned this, that though I collect watches and clocks. I'm very much into it. I want to have a gasoline-powered clock. I mean, that's the one thing I get, and I hope I'm going to get one before I die. All right. Well, let's bring Dr. Horner back on here. Um, Dr. Horner, leave, leave uh, theater on for a second. I don't hear any background noise today. Uh, any um, anything that we missed so far that you wanted to go over? I know you were talking about um, a study, or maybe it was a paper that was recently published in, in, through um, ASHRAE, the American Society of Heating, Refrigerating, and Air Conditioning Engineers. What was that paper on, and um, what kind of highlights can you give us from it? Okay, I'll be happy to. Uh, but first, I'd like to uh, uh, acknowledge the... Uh, uh, Dieter's comments about Brian Butcher. Brian, I actually worked in the same section with Brian, so I was uh, in the lab across the hall when, when some of that stuff was going on. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's good to hear his name again. Um, the article that I mentioned to you uh, just before we started, and we've got a, uh, here at Air Quality Sciences, we conducted some research and uh, just have a paper out uh, this past month 
I believe, yes, March 2010, uh, in Ashray's research journal, HVACNR research, um, from March 2010. It's the results of some uh, experimental work we did with MBA, growing, uh, growing mold on typical building materials, and then in the environmental exposure chambers we have here monitoring what was being off-gassed. And it uh, didn't, uh, we found a lot of the same compounds that uh, had been found before in, in, in earlier studies, but we were able to, uh, we did some, first did some screening studies with a large number of combinations of individual fungi and groups of fungi on different materials. And then we uh, scanned through all that, uh, combed through all that, all those multiple combinations to look for compounds that were more unique. And Probably the most significant finding that we uh, were able to come up with out of there was the identification of anisole or uh, methoxybenzene as a fairly specific um, indicator of stachybotrys growth. Uh, that's something that obviously would have some uh, some nice applications if, it, if that procedure gets refined. Uh, the purpose of ASHRAE being interested in this was to see if the sensitivity of the MVOC analysis could be increased to the point to where the uh, sampling could be done in a moving airstream, such as a return duct, uh, to give you an indication that something was going on somewhere in that ventilation zone. Uh, that uh, the sensitivity of the sampling procedure needs probably an additional quantum uh, step forward uh, to be able to do that. But it was very interesting that we were able to identify that uh, as a specific indicator of uh, of that one mold. And we then, in looking at the literature, when we were pulling together the manuscript, uh, we did spot that uh, it had been mentioned already, and uh, most notably, I think, by uh, Schleibinger, uh, his group up in Canada. So we were able to confirm that and uh, put some boundaries around uh, exactly what combinations of materials uh, it, it was produced on. So that's the probably the, the nugget to take away from that paper in last month's HVACNR research. Um, continuing effort, obviously, from a research standpoint, always need more research. Okay. I have a quick follow-up, I guess, to that. Um, you know, we, we also hear about mycotoxins produced by the fungi, and most often and almost exclusively in the past, I had heard, you know, they would be found uh, in the spores or in the, in the hyphal hyphae or hyphae, however, whichever mycologist is on the show pronounces it a little differently anymore. But uh, then also in the um, substrate maybe that they were growing on, what about in the VOCs? Has anybody been able to pinpoint whether these ever occur in the VOCs? Uh, no, VOCs are going to be strictly gas phase uh, as part of the definition. And mycotoxins, uh, all the evidence I've ever seen, uh, shows that the, the mycotoxins are particle-bound. That is, they're going to be carried on particles, either spores or fragments, fragments of hyphae, or fragments of degraded substrate as a source that should not be ignored because a lot of these compounds are going to be um, excreted from fungi into their immediate surroundings. And if the material on which the mold is growing, the, the, the substrate, if that is degraded, then typically the material, the, the substrate, becomes uh, friable and can break parts of it can break apart into very small particles. Uh, there is some evidence. There's not a lot of studies, but there is some evidence that these uh, uh, small fragments of substrate, uh, small fragments, period, whether they be fragments of, uh, of 
hyphae or fragments of uh, substrate could also be carrying uh, some of the various metabolites. And certainly if you can put uh, one group of metabolites on the particle, there's no reason to think that the others wouldn't be there. The strongest evidence that I've seen was specifically looking for allergens on these uh, very small fragment particles. Uh, but there's uh, some work also been done out of uh, Strauss's lab at Texas Tech that and it was able to do some size-selective fractionation and uh, demonstrate that uh, there was mycotoxins, uh, recognizable mycotoxins on some of the very small particles as well, too small to be a spore. Okay. Um, but the, 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 VOC, the VOCs and the mycotoxins are going to be uh, separated on that characterization, at least, and one's going to be volatile and one's going to be particle bound. Okay. Dr. Horner, what does the term cross-reactivity mean, and is it important? Oh, it is crucial if you are talking about fungal allergens. It's probably, uh, arguably, one of the least understood and most misunderstood aspects of uh, fungal allergy. Uh, Cross-reactivity refers to the situation where somebody has been exposed to an allergen from one source. The body responds by producing antibodies, uh, as we discussed before. Subsequently, the uh, body is exposed to allergens from a different source, but the same antibodies uh, recognize it and respond to it. And so that, in that situation, you would say that those two sources of antigen or allergen are cross-reactive. Uh, that can be a difficult uh, point to establish in, in humans because humans are exposed to multiple uh, allergens and antigens. So uh, if you're working with human sera and looking, say, for IgE, it, you, there would always be the question as to whether or not the person was just sensitized to these two different things or were they sensitized to one and it was responding to the other. There are laboratory techniques which can then take one source and specifically inhibit a reaction to show that regardless, uh, to show that the um, uh, one agent can inhibit the reaction both to itself and to something else. Uh, and that's the laboratory procedure for establishing that it is cross-reactivity rather than somebody being sensitized to multiple uh, antigens or allergens at the same time. In fungi, many allergens are very broadly cross-reactive, and this is uh, important. It goes back to your comments about phylum, class order, et cetera. Some fungi that are fairly closely related can be you know, produce allergens that are cross-reactive, and some going up that taxonomic tree all the way to division or phylum level, there are some, uh, some, some fungal allergens within a particular phylum that can react, cross-react with allergens that are produced by fungi that are distantly related all the way up to the phylum level. So practical standpoint, this becomes important because... Um, you don't know exactly what exposure is being measured when you uh, look at uh, the pattern of IgE or IgG reactivity. This was the nub of uh, dispute or, or conflict in a paper published a couple of years ago where uh, alternaria allergen was or antigen was measured in house dust from a very large national survey. Uh, almost all of the dust samples from houses across the country uh, had detectable levels of alternaria. 
and the conclusion of the authors was that, well, well the authors didn't see a, a real value of doing that sampling because the alert, the assay was deemed to be non-specific. Uh, there was a response article produced to that which uh, looked at the sort of characterized the assay that was being used and showed that, in fact, there was a good bit of cross-reactivity that these other, a number of other fungi also produced antigen that could be picked up in the same assay. So it's not that the um, assay per se was not specific, but rather that it was looking specifically for an antigen that occurred across a broad range of, of fungi. And those, that broad range of fungi were pretty much all the dark, pigmented, uh, outdoor fungi. So my stance on that was, it wasn't necessarily an assay that wasn't useful for anything. It just needed to be better defined in terms of what was it recognizing. I thought it was an excellent candidate assay to pick up the outdoor background uh, type of fungi and uh, use that perhaps in conjunction with some other assays, uh, looking more specifically at indoor fungi. So that's... Uh, environmental character from the standpoint of measuring things in the environment, that's an example where cross-reactivity is quite important. From a clinical standpoint, it uh, can be even more messy for the allergist to say that uh, to test someone, a patient, with a particular mold allergen extract and make uh, accurate conclusions about what this person should be avoiding or what were they sensitized to because knowing that someone reacts to a given mold extract doesn't necessarily tell you that that's the mold they were originally sensitized to. So it's, it's, it can be quite a challenge to deal with allergenic cross-reactivity, um, and it, it modulated obviously by uh, what's in the environment as well as the, the differences from person to person and how their immune system reacts to things. Okay, let's go to our um, roundup here. We'll bring Dr. Wild back on, and uh, we, we have a little roundup session here. We'll go around and ask one more question each. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw hide. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw Okay, let's bring Dr. Wow back on first. Uh, Dieter, any questions or comments? Uh, well, yes. Uh, I think a couple of wonderful and, and, and excellent uh, examples and, and, and uh, remarks were made with the difficulties of uh, measuring and who is allergic to what and when and where and, uh, and how it is done, you know. Uh, I have an easy way of getting rid of all allergies in this world. There is no doubt in my mind. I just take away all the oxygen. Then we will have pretty <laughs> in about in about in about five minutes we have no more problems whatsoever with that. <laughs> you know, Dieter, while while um, Doctor Horner was describing that, I couldn't get it out of my head. Maybe I don't know. I was trying to think of how you could kind of summarize the, the cross-reactivity, and I was thinking, well, is that sort of like uh, multiple fungal reactivity, but it, you know, kind of playing on the multiple chemical sensitivity thing, but I don't think that quite works. Uh, uh, well, 
Well, I, I, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that their brothers and sisters or cousins in the fungi uh, uh, world, and uh, there may be, you know, something like that. Uh, I don't. In fact, I don't have a doubt about it. Uh, yeah, there are hundreds of thousands of mold, and if you get sensitized to one for whatever reason, whatever sensitization means, doesn't matter. But um, um, you, um, uh, uh, I believe that there are there are molds out there, fungi out there. Uh, which are very similar, and you will react to them. Uh, the other thing that, that, that interested me, and Joe knows, I spent some time in the uh, Virgin Islands in St. Croix and St. Thomas and in uh, Puerto Rico, and the interesting thing is, I mean, the climate is obviously quite different, particularly during December <laughs> uh, down there. And I measured and I, I collected uh, samples to look at uh, back, uh, not bacteria, at molds, uh, and at bacteria too, but that's another story. And we talk about mycology over here. And the amazing thing was, there wasn't really a heck of a lot of a difference between St. Thomas and in Pittsburgh. Uh, and in Pittsburgh, and I must yeah, say that, in Pittsburgh, during May, June, July, and August. Yeah, forget about yeah, two feet of snow. You're not going to get too many molds out there. Uh, that was an interesting thing for me to realize that, boy, I'm down there in a tropical climate, and I basically get, for practical purposes, the same species uh, of mold on my uh, agar plates or uh, in my sport wraps. Uh, Dr. Horner, is that... Would you say that's because, you know, those species are similar throughout the region, or maybe that's just what the labs are looking for? Uh, it certainly could be what the labs are looking for, but it uh, was, it was, I didn't hear, uh, did you mention, were these indoor air samples or outdoor air samples? And, well, I took, both, of course, both, uh, both of them, and I was at the one. The indoors is, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, when I took outdoor samples, I was surprised how few I found. They were still a little bit higher than on the inside. Big deal. Doesn't bother me. But yeah. I well, thought the, if I were a mold, I would be hanging around down there. <laughs> right. Uh, well, it, uh, a lot of a lot of the biological activity is not happening in the air, uh, of course. But uh, so there probably are much greater differences if you got onto the substrates. But uh, bear in mind, indoors, and I'm not sure what, uh, what what types of buildings you're in, but one of the things we do is try to make the climate indoors as similar as possible, regardless of whether we're in, in Finland or in, in St. Croix. Exactly uh, so that, right. uh, nar that narrows the environmental parameters, and so it's not as surprising that um, you, know, you would see, see some similar things. And if you're doing outdoor sampling on a clear day, um, you're going to, uh, one of the big driving forces there is going to be uh, what's the uh, vapor pressure, the moisture in the air, and how much ultraviolet radiation is, is there, because that's what is going to um, uh, drive the survival at any rate of a lot of the fungal spores that are, that are not pigmented. Two factors, absolutely. 
And the building, that we, which was a, quote, typical office building, doesn't matter what, when, and where, but it was in St. Thomas. And it was about, ah, I would say, if it was a lot, a quarter of a mile away from the sea. And other people said, we have more problems up in the mountains. Uh, there are more uh, problems up there than we do, do have down here at sea level. I don't know that. I didn't measure it. I just heard it. Yeah, that could be because you've got uh, much less uh, uh, probably cooler temperatures, so it's not going to desiccate the spores as much. So I could, I could see uh, uh, the correlation yeah. with that, too. Right. But in terms of terms of wrap-up, one thing to, to sort of keep an eye out for, I think some of the new research is, uh, looks at these uh, fungi not as uh, necessarily from allergens or, or toxin standpoint, but uh, there's been a lot of work recently with the interaction of mold uh, components with the innate immune system, and in particular the description of the new uh, macrophage receptor, Dexin-1. Uh, there's, now, there's a good bit of uh, a couple of really elegant papers uh, that have been published recently showing the glucans, uh, illustrating what the exact mechanism of interaction of glucans are with the uh, innate immune system and, and how that leads to um, inflammation. And uh, from an indoor moldy building standpoint, uh, that's something that I think needs more uh, attention because if you have degraded colonies and materials, uh, they're going to be rich uh, sources of these particles that have dead bits of the cell wall with the glucan in it. And uh, if, in fact, you're constantly being exposed to that, which can lead to all sorts of uh, innate immune system triggering, uh, there's certainly a possibility that some of that might be leading to, to some of the complaints that uh, underlie that damp building effect that the Institute of Medicine report and the World Health Organization report last year talk about. What can you uh, do? You call the the names of the researchers. So I, I know I could probably do a search, or uh, or may, maybe where we could lead. There, there's been um, been several papers uh, from several different groups. Uh, two that I saw recently, the allergen meeting, uh, were uh, which are produced else, uh, pr uh, which are published elsewhere, but they have abstracts in the Journal of Allergy. Uh, Tom. Tom Rand was one of the researchers, and David Miller was the other. That uh, They have two abstracts in the Journal of Allergy uh, from the allergy meeting February, March of this year. You may be able to get that from Dr. Miller. He was a guest on the show a while back. Cliff, do you have a final question? I do, I do. Um, I just, you know, I know that your organization was involved in a lot of sampling uh, post-Hurricane Katrina. I just wondered, you know, what you learned from the data. The most of what we learned several things is how to uh, scramble and, and deal with multiple, multiple projects at the same time, but I think probably uh, two-thirds of the consultants in the country also were going through that at the same time. We pulled some data. We were fortunate enough to be involved with a follow-up study, um, and uh, for that purpose, there were a lot of outdoor air samples taken starting uh, two years after Katrina and, and for about 18 months, so roughly two years to three and a half years after Katrina. We looked at um, their results and compared them with a lot of the outdoor control samples that we took uh, and being involved in half a dozen projects down there uh, from... I think the first samples we had were from September, I think about September 10th, of, uh, which was just less than two weeks after the storm, uh, and through that fall and through July of the following year, of, I guess it would have been 06. We took our outdoor control data set 
and compared it to the outdoor data set from this follow-up uh, asthma study. And uh, we got some interesting observations in terms of seeing how the outdoor air was affected for at least several months in the fall of 05, fall and yes, it fall in the early winter of 05, uh, where there was actually a lot of uh, fungal spores that you would expect to see in a water-damaged building in the outdoor air, away from any buildings uh, in New Orleans. But, of course, anybody who was down there remembers that at that time there were literally mountains of refuse of stuff that had been dragged out of the houses and had been uh, piled up on the streets and was being picked up with front-end loaders and carried uh, carried off in uh, large uh, trucks. So... Looking back on it, it certainly did not make, uh, it wasn't surprising, but it was interesting to see that what, strictly speaking, was an indoor air quality mold issue uh, was actually large enough to, for several, for a couple of months, to really impact what was uh, the background in the outdoor air. All right. Well, I just have a, I have a quick one if you just have one more minute here, but if you've got to run, I understand. No, I'm going to get Okay. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about, mold and fungi and, and sampling, et cetera. And, and there's been a real, um, I guess, a push recently from organizations and from people with a great deal of influence within the industry to actually use less sampling prior to remediation. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that, on that current kind of trend um, to go away from doing sampling and just use that money to do the remediation. Do you think we're headed in the right direction there, or uh, is it more complicated than that? I think um, to some degree it's more complicated. To some degree it's, it's less complicated. Um, I think that sampling is frequently misused. Uh, that was a frustration I had when we were running a lab, uh, seeing what some of, the, some of the results were being used for. Uh, a lot of people, I think, have far more confidence in air sampling for fungi than uh, than it warrants. In particular, where air sampling, I think, uh, does not have is not as robust as people believe it is, is when you're looking for the absence of something, and that basically boils down to clearance sampling. It's uh, air sampling can be very useful when you get a positive result and you can look and see spores or colonies. When you don't see anything. You never know if it's a sampling failure, an analysis failure, or if there was nothing there for the moment you were taking the sample. And in that situation, I don't have a lot of confidence in that being a real strong no. I uh, have described this to some people before as if you uh, are going into your physician's office for an annual checkup and you blindfolding, put earplugs in his ears, gag him and then tie his hands behind his back and an hour later you come out and he says well i didn't find anything wrong how much confidence would you have in that diagnosis um so not seeing anything on your sample might be a good indication or it may be uh some flaw in any of two or three other systems that would generate the same result so i've got a lot more confidence in sampling results from when i see something uh, than when I don't see something. So in that regard, um, I've always had questions about the use of air sampling for clearance and, and remediation. What about the um, recommendation now in the AIHA uh, Green Book, I guess, to use like a gravimetric sample to just, you know, weigh some dust essentially and use a cleanliness standard? Are you, do you like that idea or is it something that you think needs more work? The idea of focusing on cleanliness, I, I think, is in the right direction. I have used the um, 
uh, gravimetric technique as uh, uh, that I believe is the one they're referring to. The concept um, I very much agree with. Uh, the specific method is is pretty cumbersome. Uh, I know the one uh, the one method that uh, frequently is used is the um, the one for, uh, that was developed by the duct cleaners. And for a smooth surface uh, where you've got consistent surfaces all the way through what's being cleaned, uh, that method uh, works pretty well. You, it's difficult to get enough dust to sample enough area to get a good weight uh, is one problem with, with that technique. You really need to surface a sample in multiple locations just to get enough to, in theory, to have enough to weigh on most balances. Um, I think that would be a productive area of research uh, would be to come up with some objective, easily conducted cleanliness check for surfaces uh, in the field. Those uh, if you can look at, uh, use a particle counter or a, an aerosol monitor to check that the air has been scrubbed clean, and you can verify that the surfaces are clean, and then, of course, that would be after you've already verified that all the mold colonized material is gone. Um, that would give you the objective cleanliness uh, indicators that most people would be looking for to conclude that the not only is the colonized material in a remediation containment been uh, gotten out, but the area and remaining surfaces have been adequately cleaned. And it also gives you the benefit of uh, timeliness in terms of those are those would be things which could be uh, conducted on site. So a decision could be given to the to the contractor immediately without uh, going back to the lab. All right. My aerobiology, aerobiology colleagues will hammer me on this one because <laughs> more traps for clearance are their gold mine. People are willing to pay extra for for rush, and they're the easiest ones to read if they've been done, if the remediation's been done, well, there's nothing there, so you're getting paid double to do nothing. Right. Uh, so the the lab, my aerobiology compatriots, love them. So. Right. Well, we appreciate your candor, and we uh, certainly appreciate you joining us here this week on IAQ Radio, Dr. Elliot Horner from Air Quality Sciences. I hope we can bring you back sometime. Be happy to talk to you about it. Take All care. Right. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. This is Radio Joe Hughes with my co-host, the Z-Man, hey, Cliff Slotnick, well, saying good show today. thanks to Dr. Horner. Of course, thanks to uh, Dr. Dietrich Wow for joining us, Environmental Annie Koalecki at the controls. Most importantly, thanks to you, our growing group of loyal listeners, uh, especially those of you that hung in there right to the end. We appreciate that. And uh, we'll see you back here next week on IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.